Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well and enjoying this month of September. September is Alopecia Areata Awareness Month. It's also Scarring Alopecia Awareness Month. On September the 6th, we held a public webinar to celebrate Alopecia Areata Awareness Month. And I thought I'd upload the webinar recording to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast in the event that some would like to listen to it. We have it uploaded, of course, to our Donovan Medical YouTube channel, but here is the recording from the September 6th webinar. We've had several questions sent in ahead of time, and the question asked during the webinar, 13 questions in total, some interesting discussion, hope you enjoy it. We will have a webinar for Scarring Alopecia Awareness Month at the end of the month, and if you'd like to join that live webinar, please do. But we'll upload the recording for that, too, if everything goes well. Thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing you again in the fall for another season of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for today's webinar. If you have questions that have not been already sent in, please do enter them in the question and answer box, which you'll find in this Zoom platform. There's been a number of great questions that have come in, and I want to thank everyone for sending those in. What we'll do first is review those questions, and then we'll get to any additional questions that are being sent in. Alopecia areata research is progressing very quickly, and it's a tremendously exciting time where we now, in the United States, have two FDA-approved treatments for advanced alopecia areata, and that's a drug called baricitinib and a drug called ritlicitinib. And similar approvals for medications like this will be occurring in many countries in the very near future. But not only are we learning about these approvals, but we're learning a whole lot more about the condition itself and what causes it and what are some of the factors that lead to people having better prognosis and worse prognosis. And so we're learning a whole lot very quickly. And the entire field is moving along at a pace that we haven't seen in the past, so it's a tremendously exciting time. It's my real great honor to be able to join you today and to address some of these questions that have come in. And if there are additional questions that come in, then I will look forward to answering them as well. So I will share my screen, and we will get going with Alopecia Areata Awareness Month. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Jeff Donovan. I'm a dermatologist, and I practice in Canada. I practice on the west coast of Canada, and I am a dermatologist that exclusively sees patients with hair loss issues. And I would like to mention before I start that the information here really is for educational purposes, and hair loss is complex. And you really should discuss some of the fine details of your story with your practitioner before moving ahead with some of the information that you'll hear today. I think that's really important. There are a number of elements of a person's story which are sometimes omitted from a question that is sent in that are really important. And um, one should always review details with their practitioner. First question that has come in is, is the rate of alopecia areata going up? That's a really such an interesting question because the answer is, is yes. What's challenging to know is why. And the second challenge is knowing whether issues like the COVID pandemic or other issues like vaccination, etc., will change those rates even more. But we have a number of studies which are showing that the rate of alopecia areata is increasing in children and increasing in adults. They're gradual increases. They're not gigantic steps that have taken place, but they are increases over the last 10, 15, and 20 years. And it's not clear why that is, and there's probably many reasons why it's increasing, It does seem that it's more complex than just, I think we're picking it up more. The medical community is more knowledgeable about alopecia areata. So, of course, the rates are going up. It seems more more than that. It seems that truly the rates are increasing. 
we're seeing that same increase in a number of autoimmune diseases. And so alopecia areata follows that very closely. The immune system is wonderfully complex. Each year we learn that the immune system is even more complex than we once imagined. And in the case of alopecia areata, it is an autoimmune disease that affects the hair follicle and causes hair to fall out because of the inflammation that's present in the scalp. But it's much more complex than just a hair disease. Patients with alopecia areata have disease often of the nails. Patients with alopecia areata have an increased risk of other autoimmune diseases like thyroid disease, like atopic dermatitis or eczema. And now we're learning perhaps an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and other issues. And so we're realizing that this condition is not just a hair disease, that it's a a multi-system condition that affects multiple parts of the body. Some of this is clearly regulated by the genes that we're born with, but not all of it, because you can have two identical twins that have identical genetics, and one will develop alopecia and one won't. Now, there's a a pretty high chance that if one twin develops it, the other twin will develop it, but it's not 100%. And so there's a significant portion of alopecia that's explained by the environment, that's explained by our stresses, what we eat, what we don't eat, what we take into the body, etc. And so there's a lot of unanswered questions, and I think over the next many years we'll understand more and more about this as the world comes to spend more time researching issues like diet, like stress, like pollution, like the microbiome and the bacteria that we have in our gut, the good bacteria and the, and the bad bacteria. And so it's a, a complex disorder that we don't fully understand. And even our best treatments for alopecia areata right now in the year 2023 don't help everyone. They help more people than they did in 2020, but they don't help everyone. And that really speaks to the fact that we haven't figured it all out. But the rates of alopecia areata are going up, and so I really appreciate this question. Why this is, we don't fully understand. Question two, what blood tests should be ordered for someone with alopecia areata? So this is a a question that I'm asked often. And part of me feels that it's an easy question, and part of me feels it's a complex question. Because everyone with alopecia areata should probably have a hemoglobin or your red blood cells tested, your thyroid tested or your TSH, your iron tested or, or your ferritin, your vitamin D tested. But so many of the other tests that are sitting there on the form, the blood test requisition, depend on the person's story. And so whether or not we should order vitamin B12, whether we should order zinc, whether we should order certain hormones, whether we should order inflammatory markers, whether we should check if you have rheumatoid arthritis, whether we should check if you have celiac disease, really depend on your story. And so there's no universal template that exists for blood tests for any hair loss condition. And so if I'm going into room 7 and someone says, patient in room 7 has alopecia areata, I don't just take in a blood requisition form and hand it to them and say, please make sure you get these done. I have to listen to the story. And if someone has really good hemoglobin levels or red blood cells and really good iron levels, then it's pretty unlikely that this person has celiac disease, for example. Not impossible, but pretty unlikely. But if I go in to see a patient and they have low iron levels, low hemoglobin levels, low ferritin levels, and it's not improving with iron therapy, and there's other issues related to the symptoms that sometimes go along with celiac disease, including bowel issues, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, other issues, changes in mood, then I might say to this patient, you know, has anyone checked your testing for the autoimmune bowel disease called celiac disease? If they haven't, then I might include that on the requisition. If a patient has 
joint disease. And they say, you know, my mom had rheumatoid arthritis. I have alopecia areata, but mom had had rheumatoid arthritis. And my hands are really, really stiff in the mornings. And I, I can hardly use them for a couple hours. They're very sore. Then I might say to that patient, you know, I think with your story, perhaps you should see a rheumatologist and perhaps while we're waiting for that referral to take place, I'm going to order some blood tests for rheumatoid factor and some other tests as well that go along with rheumatoid arthritis. And so you can see in that patient, those tests are relevant. In another patient, ordering those various blood tests for rheumatoid arthritis wouldn't be a good idea. There are about 50 tests that can be ordered. And in the course of a week, I certainly order all 50 of those tests, but I don't order all 50 of those tests in a given person. Some patients I order just four, some patients I order eight, some patients I order 10. And so really one needs the whole story. But thyroid tests, iron, vitamin D, these are really important for all patients. If a patient is about to start a tablet or an immunosuppressant for their alopecia, then I'm probably going to order other blood tests to make sure that the liver is okay, the kidneys are okay, everything else is okay in the body before we introduce that treatment. So there's a whole new set of tests that come in there. And so you really want to review your entire story with your doctors. So a question has come in asking, do JAK inhibitors cure alopecia areata? For those of you who don't know, JAK inhibitors are a group of new oral medications, as well as topical medications, but specifically oral medications, that are now FDA-approved for treating advanced alopecia areata, or more than 50% of the hair loss, more than 50% of the hair gone. And there's many JAK inhibitors. They go by the names of baricitinib, ritlacitinib, upadacitinib, abrocitinib, and others. And there's, there's more than that. Baricitinib and ritlacitinib have been FDA approved. And they're not cures. And I think that's really important. And many patients come into clinic with the understanding that these treatments are cures for alopecia. They're not cures, but they're treatments. And when these treatments are given, some patients will be able to grow back hair, but not all. For someone with very advanced alopecia areata, let's say complete hair loss on the scalp, totalis is the name of that, alopecia totalis. These JAK inhibitors may help anywhere from 15 to 30% of patients achieve some pretty significant regrowth of hair, but they don't help everyone, and that's really important to know. And they are required to be used lifelong. And if one grows back hair and then stops, the hair falls out. And so by using the word cure, we often think of a treatment in the world where we administer the treatment and then the disease goes away and we stop. And that would be a cure. In the case of alopecia areata, we don't have a cure. Any cure but we have some treatments that can be very effective. Now, there are some forms of alopecia areata that really want to grow back on their own. And there are some forms of alopecia areata that are affecting only a small portion of the scalp. And sometimes we can give a treatment like a topical corticosteroid or steroid injections, and the hair grows back, and we can stop. And the patient doesn't need any treatment for two months, six months, nine months, five years. Is that a cure? It's not a cure. It's a successful treatment because there's always a chance that the alopecia patch can occur again. Now, what we're not very good at in the year 2023 is knowing, will that patch come back again in six months? Will it come back again in six years? Will it come back again in 28 years? but there's a very high chance it'll come back if you have one patch. And so in the case of small patches of alopecia, we can often get the hair growing back, stop treatment, but it might return somewhere else in the next 
many years. In the case of alopecia totalis or universalis or advanced alopecia, we often need to keep the treatment on board continuously. And if we stop, the hair falls out. And so we don't yet have a cure. But researchers are working very hard to better understand alopecia areata and have come a long, long way over the last many years in understanding alopecia. And so it is a very exciting time. And I'm hoping that more and more treatments will come in the years ahead. So let me move on to the next question. What treatments are possible for eyelash loss? Eyelash loss can be treated with agents such as bimatoprost or latisse, as well as some other agents, including eyelash serums. Some patients with alopecia areata lose eyelashes, as well as eyebrows and scalp hair. But specifically, eyelashes is the focus of this question. And one of the treatments which is often used is bimatoprost as a local topical treatment. For those of you who are more familiar with the popular trade name Latisse, this is bimatoprost. And this is a product that's applied to the upper eyelid at night. And so when an individual sleeps, the upper and, eye, upper and lower lashes come together during sleep and can stimulate eyelash growth. There's a number of eyelash serums on the market that people use to try to grow longer eyelashes uh, in the general population. And sometimes these are used for alopecia areata as well. In the case of alopecia areata, sometimes the systemic treatments or the pills that people use for treating their alopecia can help the eyelashes as well. And what I mean by that is when a patient has advanced alopecia areata and uses a JAK inhibitor or uses another immunosuppressant to help their scalp grow, sometimes that also helps the eyelashes to improve as well. And so when someone has eyelash loss, it's important to discuss with your physician whether a localized treatment just of the eyelashes is appropriate or whether another treatment which calms down the entire immune system is the way to go. So a question has come in asking, what other medical problems do patients with alopecia areata have? So... Many patients with alopecia areata are quite healthy, but I think it's important to recognize that some patients with alopecia areata can have thyroid problems, and that's why we check the thyroid levels, or TSH. Some patients with alopecia areata can have eczema, or what we call atopic dermatitis. A small proportion can have other issues, like autoimmune loss of pigment, which we call vitiligo autoimmune joint diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. These are much less common than eczema and thyroid disease. Patients with alopecia areata can experience uh, mood issues, including depression and anxiety, and we know that, that those are increased as well. But these medical issues don't affect everyone. And so in evaluating someone with alopecia areata, it's important to review from head to toe the general health of the individual. Is the individual experiencing fatigue, weight loss? Is the individual experiencing problems with the bowel, such as diarrhea, joint pains, alterations in sleep, alterations in mood, depression, anxiety, itchy skin, loss of pigment anywhere? All these questions are really important for patients with alopecia areata to understand what medical issues may or may not exist. And oftentimes, the answer to all these questions that we ask is, no, I don't think that sounds like me. But occasionally a question is asked and the patient says, yeah, that I do have that. And that may be an area for further exploration. And sometimes it's not the dermatologist that takes it to the next stage. Sometimes I refer patients to colleagues that help a patient that is experiencing Issues in the bowel might be referred to a gastroenterologist. A person with joint disease may be referred to a rheumatologist. A patient experiencing concerns related to depression and anxiety. I may ask my psychiatry or psychology colleagues to assist in some cases. 
And so I think it's really important to to be aware of these issues and to really feel comfortable talking with your doctors about the entirety of your health because it may be relevant to alopecia areata. But most people are quite healthy. That's important to keep in mind. Next question. My son is three years old and has alopecia areata. One year ago, hair loss started and his hair and eyebrows completely fell out. In the tests, it was determined that his intestinal flora was very disordered and he has lactose and gluten intolerance. There are some doctors who have found that intestinal flora disorder and leaky gut syndrome can cause some autoimmune diseases. I would like to know your thoughts on this subject. Thank you so much for this question. We certainly have come to understand in the world of autoimmune diseases that the health of our gut is very important. We know that in many autoimmune diseases that the gut health is altered. The bigger challenge in 2023 is knowing exactly how to repair that and knowing if fixing that will improve the autoimmune disease. One of the biggest mistakes that's made, in my personal view, is the assumption that if the bowel organisms are altered, that fixing them will lead to an improvement in the autoimmune disease. It sometimes does, but it doesn't always. Now, in the case of alopecia areata, we know that in some cases the gut organisms or the microbiota of the gut, the good bacteria and the bad bacteria, the balance between all of the bacteria is altered in some cases. We don't fully know what to do with that, but we do know that in some cases of alopecia areata, in some studies of advanced alopecia areata, that by giving lots of good bacteria back to the gut, that uh, some patients have benefited. So we know absolutely that there's a role for improving gut health. The problem is we don't know what proportion of patients will benefit by improving gut health, and we don't universally know how to do this. And so it's an area that really does need more study, especially how we define some of these issues like leaky gut syndrome, how we define dysbiosis, and whether the definition of dysbiosis or dysregulation of bacteria and other organisms should have a different definition in alopecia areata than it does in rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or multiple sclerosis or diabetes. We don't know that yet. But we know that the topic deserves more study because there are some children who have abnormalities in the bowel, like celiac disease, not only, not only gluten sensitivity, but celiac disease, whereby removing gluten from the diet in those children that are known to have celiac disease, that hair regrowth can occur in some children. Now, not in all children, but in some children. So we do know that the bowel health is very important. The field of bowel health and what we call dysbiosis or dysregulation in bacteria in the gut is truly in its infancy. I think the most important thing is for us to be humble to the fact that it is in its infancy and uh, not be so bold as to feel that it's straightforward and clear-cut and that if you have an autoimmune disease, you must take this strategy to improve your gut health and your autoimmune disease will be cured because that's where we lose hope and that's where the logic breaks down. That logic is relevant to some patients. It's not relevant to all patients. And so if there is gut issues, it is absolutely important to explore those issues with your family doctor or your gastroenterologist, especially with alopecia areata, because we know that improving gut health might do something positive to alopecia areata. It might not, but it might. And so if someone has diarrhea, if someone has bloating, if someone has chronic constipation, if someone has these sorts of issues, they're absolutely important to look at. And I am a very big believer for many of the hair loss conditions that we treat that diets that are rich 
in uh, foods that promote a healthy gut are extremely valuable. The rainbow color fruits and vegetables, the red, orange, yellow, green, purple fruits and vegetables are extremely valuable to promoting gut health, as well as some of the fermented foods that are becoming increasingly popular in Western diets. These are very helpful. What is not clear is, should we all be taking probiotics? Should we be taking prebiotics? No. No, it's very popular, but popular doesn't mean clear in terms of an evidence-based point of view. But it's a field that I follow very closely, and it's a field that absolutely has relevance. We're getting closer to understanding more and more about it, but we're not there yet. But we're certainly seeing a lot more what we call fecal microbiota transplants, where the feces or the stool of patients with good bacteria in their guts is put into the bowel of patients that have uh, abnormal flora, abnormal gut health. And uh, there is a reversal in some patients of some of the chronic medical issues that they have. Fascinating field. But I think the most important thing is to recognize that it is still in its infancy. And it's not clear-cut. And I uh, discourage my own patients from feeling that it is clear-cut. That prebiotics, probiotics is the way to go. And that's how it it's helped. Because it, it leads to some patients being helped, but at least some patients feeling disappointed. But fascinating area. So a question has come in asking, should I ask for a biopsy to prove the diagnosis of alopecia areata? Most patients with alopecia areata do not need a biopsy. Alopecia areata is what we call a condition that the diagnosis is rendered via clinical examination. So by listening to a person's story and examining the scalp up close, we can determine alopecia areata most of the time. Now, there are exceptions. There are mimickers of alopecia areata. There are conditions that one is undecided or one is on the fence. That doesn't happen very often. But when it does, that's when a biopsy is needed. And so if, if a clinician is saying, this could be alopecia areata, but it could be a scarring alopecia. Or this could be alopecia areata, but it could be trichotillomania or hair pulling that the patient is doing. Then a biopsy can be very helpful. Most of the time, a biopsy is not needed. And most of the time, a biopsy will not add anything further. And in some cases, a biopsy is um, not useful. And that is a situation where the diagnosis is clearly alopecia areata. There can't be anything else. And a biopsy is done, and either the alopecia has been present so long, or it's taken from an area which isn't really a great area to take it, and the biopsy comes back suggesting, well, it could be alopecia areata, but it could be something else or might not be. So it introduces uncertainty into the situation. There are situations where a biopsy is just not needed. The, the diagnosis is not in question. But once in a while, we do biopsies. So um, be sure to review with your doctor if, if a biopsy is needed. Biopsies are very helpful in other conditions like scarring alopecias, but not so helpful in alopecia areata. So a question has come in asking, I'm a 37-year-old female and I have alopecia areata. Will I pass this on to my children? The answer is that most likely you won't, but there is a small chance. And so when you look at individuals with alopecia areata, most people in the clinic will say, I don't know why I have alopecia areata. No one in my family has alopecia areata. And so most of the time, you don't meet patients that have a mom or a dad with alopecia areata. But of course, sometimes you do and about 20% of patients have a family history. And so I often say to patients that there's a better chance that you won't pass it on to your children than you will pass it on, but it certainly is possible because some aspects of alopecia areata are genetic. But they're not the same kind of genetics as your eye color and the same kind of genetics as uh, 
as other things we're familiar with, it's um, multiple genes that affect the development of alopecia areata. But there are some things that influence the risk a bit. And so if a person has alopecia totalis and uh, their mom or dad has alopecia totalis and another uncle has alopecia totalis and there's a strong history in the family of autoimmune thyroid disease and a strong family history of rheumatoid arthritis, well, maybe this individual has just a little higher chance of passing the alopecia on to the children than another person but it's still not 100% by any means. And so we don't have a way of testing in the year 2023 if genes will be passed on or even if an individual will develop alopecia areata. Again, a person can have all the genes for alopecia areata because their twin sister developed it. They have all the genes, but they don't develop it. And that's because alopecia areata is a complex condition where not only the genetics, but the environmental factors play a very important role in the development of alopecia areata. So a question has come in asking, does stress cause alopecia areata? I hear mixed views. <laughs> I hear mixed views too. There's no doubt about it that stress can contribute in some way to some patient's alopecia areata. But it's important to be aware that it probably doesn't cause it. We hear stories all the time that a person had an intense stress, maybe loss of a loved one, and they develop a patch of alopecia areata. Are the two related? They probably are, yes. So to negate the two is, uh, is unfortunate because they probably are related. We know from studies that stressful events like this can occur in patients with alopecia areata. The problem is, is is making too much of a link. Patient goes to the barber, goes to the hairstylist, and they find a patch in the back. And the barber says, you got a patch of alopecia areata in the back. And the patient says, what? Yeah, you got a patch of alopecia in the back. I see it all the time. You're stressed. you got to do something about that stress. Well, that's an unfortunate way of presenting the patient with their first understanding of alopecia areata because in some patients, stress has something to do with the alopecia areata, but in some patients, stress doesn't have anything to do with their alopecia areata. And so we have to be careful. A common misconception in the public is it's all stress, it's all stress. And that certainly doesn't help people cope, and that certainly doesn't help people get through the day and get through the week and get through the month. But stress has relevance in some manner, in some patients. There are some studies which tell us that in patients with depression, for example, that in some cases, treating the depression will also help their alopecia areata to some degree as well. And so treating these mental health issues is very important. The risk of some of these issues like depression and anxiety is increased in patients with alopecia areata. We are slowly, slowly moving away from calling alopecia areata a disorder to calling alopecia areata disease. And some patients will say, you know, I think of it as a disorder. I don't like to think of it as a disease. And I certainly understand that, absolutely. But the reason that it's so valuable for us as a medical community to think of it as a disease is for more and more people to recognize that there are these associations with depression and anxiety and cardiovascular disease and vitiligo and atopic dermatitis and these other autoimmune diseases. And I think that's so important because to be able to recognize the complexity of alopecia areata as a medical disease, will allow us to get funding for further research, to draw the attention of large numbers of groups that decide where money and funds are distributed in the world. And so I, I think that is important. But does stress cause alopecia areata? It can contribute to alopecia areata in some patients, absolutely. So a question has come in asking, my three-year-old developed a small area of alopecia over the summer. What treatment is considered the best? 
So when patients say to me, what treatment is the best? I always say it depends on what you consider the best. And so what's best for one person is not the best for the other person. And that's really important. I'm not a big believer in templates that if I'm going into room six with alopecia areata, I bring in a piece of paper, here's what you should do, step one, step two, step three, step four. No. To determine what's best for a patient comes with listening to their story. Where do they live? What do they do? What's their family like? What, what do they do when they get up in the morning? What do they do when they go to sleep? Uh, what are their views on medications? What have they tried in the past? What is their feeling about going to a dermatologist, going to a doctor? What's their feeling? What's their experiences in the past? All these things are highly relevant to determine the treatment that's best for the patient. A three-year-old who comes in to see me with a very small patch of alopecia and mom and dad uh, really don't seem that it's too bothersome to them. The child could not care too much right now with the size of the patch. Nobody's mentioning anything. No one's saying anything. It just happened two weeks ago, five weeks ago. It could be appropriate for that patient to just watch because 70 or 80% of patients will get spontaneous regrowth. They'll get their hair back on their own. So for some patients, that's the right plan. For other patients, it could be that no medications are used, but the child may apply some camouflage makeup for uh, several weeks or months. And I've had lots of four-year-olds and five-year-olds using products like Dermatch, for example, that have written me letters saying, you know, thank you for this tip. My alopecia went away. The alopecia didn't go away yet, but it covered up immediately with the, with the camouflage. And that was the right plan for that family. But for other families, the right plan may be to apply a small amount of uh, corticosteroid lotion like betamethasone or to apply a small amount of minoxidil drops, 2% one or two drops to an area uh, until it grows back. And so when there's small areas of alopecia in a three-year-old, we have to be aware that there's a pretty high chance it'll grow back. It may take three, four, six, eight months, but there's a pretty high chance it's going to grow back. Now, most people like to do something. They just feel more comfortable doing something. But I always introduce the concept that it's okay not to do anything because the hair might grow back. But often we'll put some betamethasone on the area for several weeks and then take a break and then several weeks again and then take a break. And by the time the, the second break is underway, the hair's back. Sometimes we'll use betamethasone and minoxidil together. You put the betamethasone on and the minoxidil over top or vice versa, depending if you're using a cream betamethasone or a lotion betamethasone. But for small patches, we don't necessarily have to do anything. The larger and larger the areas become, the less and less likely that the hair will grow back on its own. And that's where we often want to think about, are there treatments that we might want to consider? But sometimes we just watch and wait. We will often proceed to order blood tests to make sure the thyroid is okay, and make sure the iron status is okay, ask about other autoimmune issues, and sometimes we will order blood tests. And in children, in a three-year-old, we want to get it right because we don't want the patient to go back eight times for, for pokes for blood tests. So we want to listen very carefully to the story. How is the child growing and developing? Should I order a test for celiac? Is that, a, is that not appropriate? Should I order B12? Is that not appropriate? Should I order a cortisol level? Is that not appropriate? Should I order a zinc? Is that not appropriate? So we want to do a really good job listening to the child's development. Is the child growing, growing, growing on the charts? And the pediatrician is very happy with the growth and development. Is the child's mental health moving along appropriately? So we want to get all the facts before we send the patient off for blood tests. But a three-year-old should go for blood tests as well. And then I will probably want to see the patient back in two months or three months. A, it allows me to see how the patch is growing. It allows me to see if any other patches are growing. And it allows me to have a conversation with uh, mom and dad. And sometimes there are other people that are in the room, mom and dad and grandparents and siblings and everyone who wants to know about alopecia areata. And that's important because 
everyone's opinion in the family is going to influence that child's psychosocial development. And so do I want the grandmother to come in the room? I'd love it if the grandmother came in the room. Why? Because the things that grandmother feels about alopecia areata is going to influence the ultimate decisions of the family in some way and affect how the child grows up thinking about alopecia. And so if we can introduce factual information, if we can introduce concepts to family, it's really important. The best treatment depends on the patient, but probably starting a little bit of beta-methasone would be what most people would do for a very small patch, but not everyone. So a question has come in asking, does low vitamin D make alopecia worse? The short answer is we don't know. What a disappointing answer. Here's what we do know. We do know that patients with alopecia areata are more likely to have low vitamin D. And we do know that patients with severe forms of alopecia, like alopecia totalis and universalis, are even more likely to have low, low vitamin D levels. So that is clear. So some aspects of this question are yes. It does seem that the lower and lower vitamin D levels are the more likely there is to be a more severe form. So that is yes. What we don't yet know in the year 2023 is how effective is vitamin D supplementation? Because it doesn't seem in all cases that if the vitamin D is low, then just give back vitamin D and the hair will grow. It doesn't seem that simple. But it does seem clear that the more severe the alopecia, the more likely there is to be low vitamin D. And so in many of these autoimmune diseases, vitamin D is being studied. And in many, there seems to be this relationship between low vitamin D and the condition in question. But the effect of vitamin D supplementation is, is not clear. When patients have low vitamin D, we want them to take vitamin D supplements. We would like their vitamin D to come up into a normal range. But it doesn't seem that that universally is hair growth promoting. And so we have to be careful. It's tempting when you see someone with low vitamin D to say, there's the answer. Your vitamin D is so low. You just need to take vitamin D and your hair will grow. Look at how low your vitamin D is. It sounds reasonable, but it's not that simple. And many patients will take vitamin D and find that, I don't think it did anything. There certainly may be other aspects of vitamin D supplementation that are important. And for that reason, it's so valuable to have a vitamin D in a normal range. Vitamin D in normal ranges may be important for bone health, may be important for prevention of some cancers in some studies, as well as a whole range of, of other issues as well. So a question has come in asking, my alopecia areata is becoming scarring. How is this possible? So for most patients, it's not. It's not possible. Of course, I don't know enough about this particular patient's story or have a chance to examine the scalp. Alopecia areata can sometimes look scarring. It can look that I don't see any hair follicle openings. Uh, it's not growing back. I feel that it must be scarring. But the reality is we know it's not scarring. Sometimes alopecia areata can look like a scarring alopecia, but it's not. And sometimes scarring alopecias, like a condition called lichen planopilaris, pseudopalad, which are uncommon, can look like alopecia areata. And so I don't know enough details about this particular question, but alopecia areata doesn't become scarring. After many, many years, there's we're talking 15, 20 years, there can be some elements of fibrosis tissue that develops in the scalp when you biopsy it. But for the most part, alopecia areata does not become scarring. And so in this particular question, it could either look scarring or the condition is not alopecia and it's actually a scarring condition. So be sure to check with your dermatologist and have a proper assessment, and uh, raise this question with your dermatologist. And if there's any concern, a biopsy can be done, and a biopsy can readily 
determine if there is a scarring alopecia present, but usually it's not. So, that brings us almost to the top of the hour. If there's any questions that you have, please enter them in the chat box. I want to thank everyone for sending in these questions. These are great questions, and uh, it shows the the limitations we have with some of these issues. We don't fully understand in the year 2023 all that we need to understand about gut health. We don't yet have a cure for alopecia areata, but we have treatments that help many people. In the case of patchy alopecia areata with one or two circles of hair loss, we can often get the hair back in you know 90 to 95% likelihood. In more advanced forms, it's more challenging, but we have better medications now that increase the likelihood that we're going to get hair back. We don't know all the factors that contribute to vitamin uh, to uh, alopecia areata. Someone can have the exact same genetics. One person develops alopecia areata, one person doesn't. Why is that? Well, there's probably environmental factors that are playing a role. We don't understand all of that yet. But we've seen in the COVID pandemic that one of the environmental factors is infection. And COVID-19 infection, for a very small percentage of people, fuels the development of alopecia areata. And in a very small percentage of people, the vaccine as well. And we've come to learn that COVID infection fuels the development of many autoimmune diseases. And so we're learning a whole lot about these environmental factors that affect the immune system. So stay tuned. It's a very exciting period of hair loss research. So a question has come in asking, do you see loss of efficacy over time of JAK inhibitors? And what would be the reason? So thank you for that question. The answer is that we do, um, at least with baricitinib. And so JAK inhibitors are these oral medications which are now FDA-approved for advanced forms of alopecia areata. And what we learned in the first year of these medications in very good clinical trials is that patients grow more and more hair. They improve, they improve, they improve. After 26 weeks, they're improving. After 38 weeks, they're improving. After 52 weeks, they're improving. And then after one year, a small proportion of patients kind of lose some of their nice results. And maybe that's 10% of patients. So we know that not everyone keeps their nice results, but most people fortunately do. We don't fully understand why people would lose their, res their good results. And that really hasn't been studied. Is it because other mechanisms compensate that drives the development of alopecia and overcomes the ability of these medications to keep the immune system quiet? We just don't understand yet. We don't understand if this is seen with other JAK inhibitors. The leader in long-term studies is baricitinib, and we're up to two years of good studies with this drug. Some of the other medications, like ritlicitinib, we've got one-year data. Other drugs have been used for 10 years, drugs like tofacitinib, but we don't yet have that kind of careful study with tofacitinib, with randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials like we do with baricitinib and ritlicitinib. So we don't know yet. These are really important questions because these are lifelong drugs for many patients with alopecia areata. And so when I see someone in clinic who's 15 years old with alopecia totalis or total loss of scalp hair, it's really important that we convey to the patient um, and family members, if they're joining, that this is probably a lifelong medication. And we don't yet know everything about it. We don't know if this drug will benefit you in the first year and second year and third year and fifth year, and then kind of lose its effects in year 10, 20, and 30. We don't fully understand the long-term side effects. Fortunately, many of these medications seem reasonably safe. There are side effects that can occur, like an increased risk of infections, like shingles, changes in blood counts, acne, issues like heart disease and blood clots, 
and serious infections are things that are being studied very carefully, and it's not clear entirely whether these are major concerns with uh, patients with alopecia areata. But we have data a few years in length now with baricitinib and one year in length with ritlicitinib, and it's going to be really important to keep studying this and figure out what happens when someone's on these medications for five years, what happens when someone's on these medications for 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. And so the answer to this question is, some patients seem to lose effect. The one thing that the company that makes the drugs has been asked by the FDA is, now you're approved, you've got the approval for the medication, you can sell the drug, and physicians can prescribe the drug, but you're not done studying it. If you're going to bring this drug to market, you have to keep studying it and monitoring what happens. And so the company has been mandated to keep studying it. And that's very common with lots of medications, that after a drug comes to market, the company is required to keep studying it. We see that in many medications. And so we'll learn a lot more over time. Are there any concerns that start arising at year three or five or 10 or 20? We don't know all the answers yet. And so it's important for all of us, both as patients, to report side effects to physicians and as physicians to observe side effects in patients and report it to various regulatory agencies. And patients can report side effects as well to regulatory agencies as well. And so that's how we learn over time lots of good information. I want to thank you so much for joining me today for this webinar and uh, Alopecia Areata Awareness Month. I hope this webinar was helpful. And uh, if all goes well, we'll save it and post it at some time for your review. Do check our website. We hold webinars throughout the year on various topics. Generally, September is a time of webinars. We have Alopecia Areata Awareness Month uh, occurring every September. So undoubtedly, we will be back again together next year, but there's webinars throughout the year. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you again down the road.